And when my front tires hit it, it detonated a roadside bomb large enough that when it hit my door, I mean, through the, it was this vehicle was 9,000 pounds. It sent it flying through the air and landing in a canal running adjacent to the road. And they said the water was up to my chest, a huge hole in my jaw. My arm was already taken off. Like, thankfully, it landed wheels down because we would have drowned. Your story definitely intrigued me because I, I, my, my father died on September 11th. I know a part of the of what I've heard you speak on and what I've read up on, if I'm mistaken, you enlisted sh- like shortly after 9-11? Yeah, I was in college and 9-11 happened and I, and I watched it. You know, I was in Alabama, but I watched all of it go down. Um, I mean, I, I was watching as we were worried about everyone in the, in the first building the, before that second plane hit. And when I saw that second plane hit, I've always told people, I've, I've, I have not forgotten the people as the cameraman was recording and that second plane hit, everyone around it screamed, you know, and it, cause at first everyone was talking about pilot error. And then it went from that to we were a country under attack and then all the devastation that came from it. And yeah, that's how I ended up in the military. I never went back to class after that. That day you didn't literally just dropped out? Yeah, just never went back. Never even officially oh dropped God. out. It wasn't until years later I was at the VA. This is after I was injured and everything. And I was looking to enroll in school and I was like, oh, they won't accept it because I still have transcripts at UAV and I owe them money. And somebody at the VA was like, have you looked into that? Like maybe we could call somebody. So he called and explained to (laughs) the people at UAV what had happened because I owed them this money. It wasn't a lot. It was my first semester. And they're like, yeah, tell them it's good. It's <laughs> it's all gone. So, that's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Okay, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty that's pretty wild to me, especially it's super powerful because I mean, this listen, this episode is not about me. It's, we're gonna get into you, but specifically to me, you know, I was 12 years old when my dad died in the towers, and part of me growing up, I was like, I don't know what it was. I know I was young, but I feel like I didn't. I always had a regretful. I don't know if it was guilt or regret or whatever that I didn't do something. I mean, what could I do? And, and the answer is maybe, you know, what you did. <laughs> and I always thought about that. I mean, granted, I wasn't even old enough to enlist, but at the same time, you know, I always thought back to that day now being 32 and thinking of an action like you took, like something obviously hit you and you weren't even in the, the military at any point before that. So I'm curious, what what drove you to do that? Was it just the the horrifying aspect of it? Was there anything? I think, to be brutally honest, I, I mean, I love sharing the story of, to people, the patriotism aspect of it. But there is also, I mean, if we're going to be completely honest, there is a side of me that the military wasn't an option because we weren't at war. And it completely changed the desire to be in the military when it was like, oh, I, we're going to go to war. And so there was this whole other side of things that was just wanting to be in this action. That's, and that can sound kind of rough, you know, to some people. But then it was once, you know, so I went to Iraq, was in the invasion of Iraq in 03. And once I got to Iraq, I realized how much I just enjoyed working with other people of other cultures, other backgrounds, you know, because I li- we lived with the locals. A very small percentage of us lived with the locals on our deployments. And I loved it. You know, I, I did. I enjoyed the excitement of being in combat and the un, uncertainty of things and the risk. But then I also enjoyed just being with the people. So it's like there's so many different uh, realms of what got me in the military and what made me love it. 
that has so many different. So, I mean, so when I think of someone like, like you, I mean, you were 12 years old, there was nothing you could do. In fact, it was more of, I think it's led you on the path to do a podcast like this that talks about a subject that people don't ever want to talk about, even though we all think about it. Every one of us do. I appreciate that, man. And uh, thank you for your service and everything you do and what you continue to do, you know, uh, after your your journey's off. You know, I feel like it's just beginning and you've done so much. So I, I would love to hear, I mean, I know a lot of people already know about you, but I don't know where you want to start. I, I would love to hear the you know, your origin story in regards to, you know, what happened to you in 2003. Was it 2003 or it was your second tour? Well, so it was uh, 2005, 2005. So Sorry, 2003 2005. is when we invaded Iraq. And I was with the 101st. Our division commander was General Petraeus. He designed the way that the entire military went into Iraq, you know, because there was all these different discussions. Different countries didn't want to be involved. I mean, because, you know, it could be argued today whether that was even necessary, you know, but we won't get into that. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> that's, that's, um, another, but, that's another podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, though, so going on that first appointment was interesting because – you do, as an infantry soldier, I do feel like the better soldiers accept death. And so you go not expecting to come back, you know, and not everybody can, you know, I don't know, I may have just been the crazy person that was like, okay, you know what, this is what's going to happen. And I survived the first appointment. The second appointment was different because as I left, I had a son that was born between the two deployments. And so my second appointment I was leaving him behind, and that was really difficult. I carried his picture with me everywhere I went, and there were moments in Iraq that I, I remember thinking, I hope he never experiences anything like this his entire life. And then to be injured, you know, I still was had accepted death, but I did not prepare myself to wake up in a hospital and be in between. You know, here it was, the career was over. I'd found a career. Once I got in, I loved it. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Even if that meant my life was going to be cut short, I did not expect to wake up and be severely injured. And that was really hard on me, extremely hard on me. And when I tell people that I went through a lot of depression, it wasn't just the fact that I lost an arm and a leg. I didn't know who I was anymore, where I was going in life. You know, that depression that a lot of our veterans go through, it's not just the veteran community. It's anybody that loses their, their direction. You know what I mean? NFL players have a high suicide rate because, I mean, you've played football from eight until you're 30, you know, and been in the big, you know, played in the Super Bowl or something like that. And all of a sudden your career's over and they don't know where they're going. And that's where I was for several years. That's where I struggled. And there were moments that I, I did think I wish I would have died over there because then I would have been looked at like a hero and I wouldn't have to deal with any of this stuff. Now, I don't feel that way now. I have had a lot of changes in my life that have sent me in another direction. And I'm also, I feel like I have to follow up with, I am not that guy anymore. You know, you just reach a certain age and I have three children and my wife and even my cat and my dog, you know, <laughs> so I've got this nice life. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, ever since I turned 40, I'm not saying I fear death, but it, it crosses my mind all the time now. That's so interesting, especially from you, you know, you, you Oh, yeah. Went from not caring to, uh, oh, crap. What if something happens? What have I taught my, have I taught my kids enough? You know, what's going to happen to them afterwards? So, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting topic 
when my wife said that you had reached out about doing this podcast and dead talks and it was i was like really like i had to think about it and then i was like then she read the email again to me i was like let's definitely do that like that is so i am i am on a trip right now i'm in cabo which is crazy that i'm here i have this i have a friend of mine who has this incredible house that is like yeah go use it i'm right here i'm looking at the ocean and we're going to go out on a boat tomorrow and the reason we're here is my mother-in-law uh, last spring was diagnosed with extremely rare cancer and it was we didn't even know if she'd make it through the holidays and one of her things was she wanted to see the she wants to see the wells and last fall we went to Maui but it wasn't the right time of year so it didn't happen the whole trip was just I mean, it was a good trip but it just wasn't what we were going to do. And then this came up. I reached out to my friend and said, Hey, can we use your place? He's like, done. Then he set us up with a, a boat we're going out on. And we're the whales are everywhere. I mean, the minute we got here, within the first, I mean, while just sitting on the back deck, we saw five whales. You know what I mean? So no way. Okay. Yeah. So that's that's why I'm where I'm at. And it's real interesting to do this podcast right now because we're here because of a woman in our family who is facing death and it's been a topic of conversation of would you rather know it's coming or have it be a surprise sounds a little <laughs> too lighthearted no, I know what but you mean. yeah not expecting it because my father-in-law it when his father died it was i think he was in a car wreck or something but he, the police came and told him he was a child you know, you're, and it's like, what's worse? You know what I mean? Watching this person know that it's coming and you're trying to do everything for him or for it to just happen. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the million dollar question. But it's, it's interesting because what you, with you, it was like, I feel like you had a little bit of both. Uh, this is just my own interpretation. Like you, you're going into war, kind of accepting that it might happen. And I feel like it's like an in between because it, it's like a very, you know, you're, you're facing death, I feel like at any moment. And it was, and it was, it was actually easier. Was it? For me. For me, yes. Feeling like I had control, saying, oh, if I go, I chose, I chose this. You know, because I remember I had that conversation with my mom. Because growing up, my mom always pushed me to join the military. And I was like, no, 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 I don't want that. I don't want that. She grew up a military brat. Her family's all military. So she thought it made sense. And when I did join, I sat down with her and let her know, hey, I chose this. Whatever happens, I cho- I didn't want to go and her think that she pushed me into the military because it wasn't until I decided, and so I was I felt like I was in control, uh, so it did make it easier. And then now here it is, you know, you fast forward, I'm 40, and there's all this talk of death and and all these different things, and I can't help but think, oh, is it, can I prevent it? You know what I mean? <laughs> if there was anything I can yeah. do to 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 keep it from happening now, because it's like. Well, I want to help my kids as they grow up. They're now teenagers, and I want to help them become adults. And then when they become adults, I'm like, well, I need to see them get married. Well, I need to see them have kids. But eventually, that's going to run out. We None of us know mm. when that time is going to be. And it's interesting. You, you always hear about, you know, turning 40 or middle-aged men and then, you know, midlife crisis. It was cr- – when I turned 40 last year, it did, like – it's, it's getting to where it's not as bad as it was, but the last few months, 
it has been something that has constantly haunted me more than I've admitted to anybody around me. My wife doesn't even know that, that I have, I have stressed over death. So that's so interesting to me. It's, it's, it's such a, it's such a unique thing to talk about with you. Like, I, like we've already, you know, beaten with the hammer, but you, you, you told me that when you went into war for, you went into your first t- deployment, you seem cool with it from what you're telling with me. And then yeah. fast forward 10 years later, when things seem to have calmed down, I would say, now you're thinking about it. And it's like, what is that? What is that? Is that children? <laughs> is that age? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, so that's the that's the thing. Like, it is really strange. It's obviously in my head. You know what I mean? You go through different stages in your life and the way you view things and where your priorities are. And, you know, I think just like I told you when I said, to be brutally honest, the real thing that intrigued me to military was going to war. You know what I mean? Testing myself as a man. I was that kid. Like, I, I worked— and, you know, landscaping, construction, worked in a plant, anything that was, you know, getting, it was just felt like just a masculine job. That's what I went after. So war was this test of myself. But then it was also this, this greed, this selfishness that I had inside. That's why, like, I kind of feel bad when people thank me for my service because it's like, no, I was all selfishness that led me there. And so then that same selfishness did not care if I died. Um, so I think it was it was ignorance. Not that people should fear death, but back then it wasn't so much like I was in so like I was this, you know, Buddhist monk that had it all figured out. You know what I mean? I didn't have anything figured out, but I was okay with death. And then you fast forward and you know, my life and with my children and my family. I mean, I know it's going to come one day, and I hope you know people mourn me, but I don't want it to happen anytime soon. <laughs> so, <laughs> wait. So you you were, I, you know, I feel like there's so much. I mean, what the hell do I know? I've never experienced a fraction of what you've what you've experienced. And I wonder, uh, how you were what, like 18, 19, 20? What, what were you then? I was twenty. So you're forty now. So 20. twenty years ago, twenty. Yep. Right. I wonder if this was it like this. This is the speed of the things happened. So does the military? Uh, have any kind of reinforcement or discussion around death or is it just like they punch you to the mouth, figure it out? Yeah. It's kind of a, I mean, you know, the military is evolving, you know, every, every group of guys say, Oh, it's softer now. No, they're trying to figure out how we take care of our, our mental stability. I don't think the military is getting weaker. I think we're figuring things out. And at a time that I was in, I mean, it is 20 years, a long time ago. You didn't hesitate to discuss death like it's going to happen, but there was no preparation. When we lost our first, you know, when my friend Rivago died in our first deployment, that took a hit on all of us. And then you kind of held that emotion in and it eventually came out, whether on the deployment or for some of us, it was months after we returned home. Like we've all gotten together and said, oh, then one night I just had this complete come come apart and just broke down emotionally, you know, and it was because we held it. And then the second appointment, we lost a lot more guys. And there were new guys that had never experienced it yet. So I remember when we lost our first guys on our second appointment, I didn't sleep at all that night because all these different guys wanted to come and talk to me and how I dealt with it the first time and this and that. So we talked about it. Um, but that it, it's not anything that is set in place. It wasn't then by the military to prepare you for the emotional effects that death is going to have on you and the stress of worrying about it. We had, I mean, I had a buddy of mine, Hector, that on our second deployment, like he didn't even have to shave anymore. He started losing hair by patches and then it just quit growing on his face. 
And it was stress. It, when he got home, it went back to normal, but it was all stress related. And not, you know, it, it, it was the stress of what was going on about the death around us. So it was a very, and I guess for me, it was a safety mechanism to be like, no, nope, not worried about it. Don't care. And just going to do what I have to do and hopefully go out as a hero. And then ended up being injured and it changed my entire outlook. Yeah. I mean, you said, uh, you know, if you wish you passed because you, you know, said that would make you a hero, but I mean, clearly you are a hero. <laughs> There's no, obviously no doubt about that. I'm sure you've accepted that by now. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy, especially your mentality of it. Yeah, no, I mean, you're exactly right. You know, it's, you know, and if I hadn't, if, you know, now I'm thankful that just injured. I mean, now looking back, I'm like, oh, okay, I lost an arm and a leg. Yeah, it was traumatic in the beginning. It's been 16 years now. It's who I am. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> it's, and I, I find a way to take pride, like in my fitness and things I do. I love to go places and people see I miss an arm and a leg and I'm fit and I do things. You know what I mean? So I've used it to my advantage. But then also, I mean, my oldest son, Colston, was before my second appointment, but my son, Jack, and my daughter, Ryan, all came after my injury. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things. I was talking to my son, Jack. We were, he was asking about my injury. We got into more detail the other day. He's 14 now. And we were talking, and then I said to him, I said, yeah, if I, if I would, you know, fitted that bomb would have been just a little different or hit me in a different way, you wouldn't even be here right now, you know? And it was just crazy to think that all the things that would have changed. And that's a conversation you've had with him, mentioning that, yes. that he wouldn't be here? Because that's, that's, that's a big conversation. It is. The, the conversation of, like, I feel like from man to man, like, that's, this is a, a rare conversation in some sense. I, you know, it's just a, whatever the, the taboo-ness about men talking about shit like this. Or how you feel, quote unquote. Mm-hmm, yeah. There's the, the other wave of, of talking to your kids about this, you know? The idea that, uh, you, you know, you want to protect your children as much as possible. And I think this is a conversation about death that people just don't want to speak about in general. But it seems like that's like a, that was a way of talking about it with your, your son mentioning that. Yes. You know, and there is, there's a fine line. I mean, I feel like I don't want to take away my children's youth. I don't want them to. There's some things in the world they'll find out later. I'll be there to help them when they get to that age. But I don't want them to worry about things too soon. But at the same time, you do want to have certain conversations. And I don't know how long it would be. Something could happen today to me. You know what I mean? And I don't want to think that I didn't, you know, bring I Because one thing, like my father and I didn't talk about emotions. But with my kids, I tell them. Hey, it is okay to be upset. You know, we talk about those things. It's it's okay to to let things bother you, and then to to be upset when something happens. And now, because you know, with my mother-in-law, my kids love her, and we've had so that has led to that discussion being a lot more like this. This is what's going to happen, and it's it's tough. It's really tough to talk about, but I think it's necessary. It is necessary. Think- is that how you healed? Well, yeah. I mean, think about it. you were twelve. I was twelve. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that how I healed? You mean which part? Well, I'm saying from what I'm gathering, and you know, correct me if I'm completely off the off the mark here, but how you're explaining to your kids, you know, it's okay to feel, it's okay to feel, and then you oh, told me, yeah, that, is I'm, that I'm, how? Going, I'm going to be in different. Stay with stay with me here because I'm going to be going. I might, I might okay, be okay, sounding okay. crazy the way I'm pu- I'm pulling these things together. All right. But uh, you know, you said you said something about in regards to not being scared to death, like. You kind of, it sounded like you like just push it away. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I made my decision. I'm, I'm going to be good with this. So it almost sounds like, suppre- I can't tell if it's, I can never tell the difference between if it's acceptance or suppression, 
but then you told your kids how it's important to feel. And to me, that is the biggest thing is like we, we either suppress, repress, or push away how we feel. And then it ends up showing up later um, in so many ways. But in regards to after you, you know, you had that roadside bomb and your life changed forever. We haven't got into that yet, whether you want to or not, but you obviously went through a lot emotionally and mentally. So part of that healing, was it you realizing that it's okay to feel what you're feeling? Was it the acceptance of how you felt? Yes. You know, because I, there's still, there's still a side of me that is bad about suppressing things. Uh, me and my wife, talk, my wife's very open and, and, and loves to, you know, everybody has to be happy and, and she's amazing. Good for me. But there is, I do, I do suppress things to this, to this day and I'm working on it. And those bad habits, I don't want to pass on to my children. So that's why we have the conversations because it's, if I've come as far as I have with the father who didn't, and my mom, my mom didn't talk about emotions. My mom was as tough as, as I mean, she was probably tougher uh, when it, cause she came from the military side of the family and they just didn't, you didn't share things. And I have come as far as I have in my 40 years. Well, then if I can start this conversation with my children as their children, well, then who knows where it's going to take them in, in their lives. Because I think, because it is, like you said, if you suppress it, it comes out in other ways. I have talked about this on stage to audiences with my children, everybody, is when I did, when I do allow my emotions to come out, If I even if I have to go sit in the shower and be upset, if you get upset, if you cry, if you show emotion, you know what? If I don't, it comes out as anger somewhere else. You know what I mean? Because like I tell the kids, I'm like, you know, one day you're going to be driving and somebody's going to piss you off on the rope. You know what? Somebody's just mad already. Let them go through. You know what I mean? Some people are just mad it's because they're not letting their emotions out. You see them in the, we'll see them in the gas station, that person that walks in that just looks angry, you know, because they're suppressing a whole bunch of emotions and you can't let that happen. And I don't want my kids to go through that. I want them to, to be able to express themselves and be able to share with me or with someone else when something's bothering them. And especially when it comes to kids. I mean, like I was, I, I was in Iowa the other day. I spoke to a group of eighth grade, then seventh grade, then sixth grade. And each time I meant, I talked about mental health. And the other day I got a message on Instagram from one of the kids, a seventh grader who said, thank you for talking about mental health. Too often grownups think we don't have any problems, but it's so stressful. And cause I said, I was like, I know what it is. I, cause to that, I remember what I said to that group of seventh graders. I said, I remember being in seventh grade and I would never go back, <laughs> you know, and they all laugh. That shit is hard, man. Yeah. And for any adult to think what do kids have to worry about, that's when they're going through changes mentally, emotionally, physically, and they don't know what's going on in the world. And then you got all this other stuff going on and news is so accessible now. So it's a lot they can get in their head and they can worry about. So to think that kids don't have mental health issues, well, then why do we have kids that commit suicide? It's a real issue that needs to be addressed. And it's by talking. It's about letting them know it's okay to share your emotions. It's okay to talk about death. It's okay to talk about all these things. So is that the premise behind your chat? You said a charity, right? Called No Excuses? Uh, yeah. So my No Excuses charitable fund, I started, okay. So when I got injured and I was going through my depression and my struggles, there was a couple of organizations that I had linked in with for injured veterans. And at first they wanted to use me. And then I started asking too many questions and they kind of just tossed me aside. And it really, it sent me into another deeper, dark depression because I felt like, okay, I lost the military. Now this organization doesn't even want me. And it's because I was in this bad place in my life and they weren't willing to put in the work. But then I used that to my advantage and said, you know what? I'm going to outshine that organization. 
And I ended up doing that. I got involved with, or, with groups, races that supported this organization, and they dropped them because of me. Once I started talking and getting things out, um, I don't throw that name out there because that's not the reasoning. Things have, That organization has actually improved dramatically. They got rid, after several years, they finally got rid of their leadership and changed things. So that's good, but I don't work with them. Don't badmouth them, just move on. But I started my charitable fund because I did realize not all charities are equal. And so my charitable fund, what it does is, is when I find organizations that do actually do the work they claim they do, well, then I support them. So it's it's a charity that certain things I do, the money goes in there, and then I send money. But not all veterans groups. Like, I send money to my local YMCA. You know, my charitable fund donates a lot to the YMCA because my kids played sports there. I got into uh, to fitness at a young age, and I felt like fitness helped me in my depression as I came out. And so I'm like, hey, you know, let's keep these kids active. And I put a lot of money into the YMCA because I see it working. You know, homes for our troops, build houses for injured veterans, sheepdog impact assistance. They work with veterans and also post-traumatic stress and not just covering it up, but accepting it. They call it falling forward. You know what I mean? Saying, okay, I have these issues. What can I do to improve them, help them? And I love that. So I, I just had a, my first charity golf event. And we were able to give $10,000 to Sheepdog Impact Assistance. You know, so that's the charitable fund was something to help me highlight organizations that are legit. That's awesome. That's unique, too. I mean, maybe there's a lot out there. I don't know. That <laughs> Most idea people that start their own. <laughs> yeah. That seems pretty badass. <laughs> the other day, I was in uh, Clarksville, Tennessee, gave a speech. It was last week. And it was Operation Stand Down. And what I loved about it was an annual breakfast, their seventh year of this annual breakfast. And it wasn't just their organization. There were all these other veterans groups that were there. And I said, that's why I'm here and, and sharing my time and story, because this is the way it's supposed to be. You know what I mean? When you have one charity trying to pull out of the pot away from everyone else, well, that does no good. And that's, I've seen that with a lot of organizations. They want it all for themselves. And they're getting greedy. And it's like, okay, why did you start this? To work with veterans? Well, then there are other, each group has their different thing to offer. And that's what's important. That's amazing. I, I ain't never heard of a, a charity that supports other char like other foundations and other causes. That's uh <laughs> that's the most uh I don't even know what the fuck. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, just, I'm, I'm trying not to curse so much in this podcast. I still come from Jersey, New York, so it comes out. So I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I want to stick a step back to what you said earlier when you first started talking about uh, no excuses. So the organization that you were involved with prior, you said that you were asking too many questions. What do you? What does that mean? Well, because their higher ups weren't doing the right thing. They had their good old boy system, where you know certain people they would use for things, and and the way they were raising money and the way they were spending. That's how they got in trouble. Was the way they were spending their money. So questions about how they operated. Yeah, yeah, and they didn't like got that. It, and I it. was told years later by people that. Uh, quit while before the transition happened while those people and they told me they said oh they they had said specifically noah galloway will not be part of any of our stuff anymore and started pushing people out and it was ridiculous that is ridiculous like you said it was a blessing it's all those it's all, it was all those things i feel like when something like that happens you know it feels like what's going on but then it turns into your own your own shit so you know it, it yeah. sounded like a blessing in disguise it did oh without a doubt you know and i for years i the last, you know, a couple of years ago, I was like, I got to find something that is, you know, to really push me. What has got me in the past going? Well, it's always been 
being mad at somebody or something. So every time I've been successful, <laughs> it's because I was trying to prove something to someone else. And now I'm like, oh, well, I don't want to just be mad at somebody. There's got to be another way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm reading, it's, fun, it's wild that you say that because, uh, you know, I'm reading a book right now that mentions that it's always anger can motivate people or fear can motivate people. But the book started asking the question, like, why do I have to be angry to do this? Why can't I be happy to do this? Or so and so. It's kind of like rearranging the semantics of it, but you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's like, as good as that driving force was that you used it in your advantage, mm-hmm. it's like, shit, I don't want to be angry all the time. Can I, <laughs> can I do this and be happy? That's, a, that's an amazing, yeah. that's, a, that's a badass little uh, awareness right there. Yeah, you know, and that's why I like talking about my, my charity and supporting other charities. I think because then it's, there's, there is this, comfort that comes with knowing you're doing something for someone else, you know, and that's something we've all heard, experienced. I tell my kids, I'm like, you know, nothing compares to the enjoyment you get when you do something for someone else. I mean, it's, it's, that's the truth. I mean, I've never been disappointed when I was able to put a smile on someone else's face. Uh, so that's where the, the charitable fund has been another big blessing that goes from the angry side to the happy side. That's like, hey, now I'm doing something for others. Is that part of your process? You said, you know, how 20 years later after the military going from not so fearful of death and, you know, being in war to, you know, having, you know, settled, like not settled, I don't know if you're settling down, but you're doing so much, but it's not war even though I feel like some yeah. aspects of life every day are a little tough. But is this part of your process of, of being comfortable again with death? I feel like you're, you're like in like a, a different mode right now of you know, thinking about death more than you were. I am. I'm completely, yes. I mentioned it and you know, kind of laugh about it, but it hasn't been, like it doesn't ruin my life. It's not something that is I need to go see a specialist about. It's just something that stays in my head and I think about from time to time Cause like I fly all the time. I'm flying all over the place and used to, like, I don't like turbulence doesn't bother me, you know, but there has been times like it's jolted me. And I thought, Oh my God, what if something did happen? You know? And I start thinking about the kids and all this stuff, but I mean, it doesn't happen all the time, but it has, it's an interesting time in my life that I'm looking at things completely different than I did before. And I, there's a part of me that's like, well, I don't need to stress about that. But then there's also a part of me that's glad I'm not the selfish kid I was before. Because, you know, death is inevitable and it's going to happen, but I shouldn't sit around stressing about it because none of us can do anything about it when it does happen. Yeah, I love that. It seems like you're, you're really mastering the idea of letting things go. And I feel like that is uh, it's a lot easier said than done. I'm trying to, I'm trying, I'm trying to figure that shit out too. So <laughs> I commend you for, yeah. you know, uh, being aware of that. Yeah, you know, I, I think about how you said you were 12 years old when you lost your father and here it was, it was already an event that everyone was aware of, but it it really came down to, it doesn't matter if it was on September 11th or September 12th, it was huge on your life and how it impacted you. And, you know, when I think about stuff like that, I'm like, Oh, what, what can I do for my children? You know, to hope that, because I would love to, to know that, if something happened to me, they would become successful and start a, a genius podcast like you did, that. you know, which is all led from where you came from. I know you've had your struggles, your ups, your downs. I'm sure sometimes it's still not easy. This might be a grieving process for you to do this podcast. Mm. And you know what? Others are going to benefit from your experiences and where you're going through in your life. And that's all we can really do. Amen. No, I, pre- I appreciate the words. And uh, I've mentioned this before, but it's ironic how 
my dad happened to die on the big on the biggest stage that so everyone knows about. It, so I always got this attention from it, and I'm grateful for it because that's I've been you know I, I I can't even take any responsibility for getting through it because I have so many people support around me, and it always reflected the idea of this podcast was to shine the light on people like you in regards to sharing other stories. You know, like I know you said it, you know it's like my experiences hopefully reflect some aspect of this podcast, but it's really about you and your stories and sharing other stories because part of me is like yeah I always get that text on 9/11 because everyone knows it's on 9-11. It's a date people remember. Some people that died on XYZ don't get those texts because it wasn't recognized as a global event in the public eye. So I think, uh, I'm going on a rant right now, but I think that's point of the discussion we're having is to share other people's stories. And hopefully, you know, my insights help somewhat. But in regards to, uh, if you don't mind me hopping around. Oh no, yeah, hop around. <laughs> I probably should have started this from the beginning, but what do you remember from that day of, you know, on your second tour? When I got injured? Yeah. So I don't remember the injury at all. In fact, I didn't know if I remember. It was December 19th of 2005 when the explosion happened. And as I laid in the hospital bed, you know, I didn't wake up for five, six days. I was kind of, you know, they also had me in a, an induced coma on all kind of pain meds. So I didn't really know what was going on. But then I wasn't sure if I even remember the month of December. Like, and then I got a phone call from a buddy of mine that was in the Humvee with me that he was injured, but not as severely he went through Germany, but ended up at, back at Fort Campbell, you know, seeing, going to physical therapy there and then working things from, from the rear. And he called me and he was able to say, do you remember doing this? And I was like, yes. He's like, that's the day before, you know, and he's like, do you remember doing this? And I was like, yeah. He said, that's the day of. And then he was like, do you remember doing this? And I was like, no. He said, that was an hour before the explosion. Like, I don't remember even leaving. It was actually a night that I didn't have to be in the Humvee, and I insisted I go and drive the lead vehicle, and we would drive in 2005 with our headlights off, night vision goggles on, and with night vision goggles, you can see well, but you can't see everything, and what I didn't see that night was a tripwire, and when my front tires hit it, it detonated a roadside bomb large enough that when it hit my door, I mean, it threw the, it was, this vehicle was 9,000 pounds. It sent it flying through the air and landing in a canal running adjacent to the road. And they said the water was up to my chest, a huge hole in my jaw. My arm was already taken off. Like, thankfully, it landed wheels down because we would have drowned. Um, so they were able to get me out and get me back to where we were living, this potato factory we were living out of. And medics worked on me. Helicopter picked me up, took me to a camp outside of Baghdad. Doctors worked on me there from there to Germany and Germany to Walter Reed Army Medical Center in D.C. And I got there on Christmas Day. And I remember a little bit of Germany, um, but it was kind of in and out. And then I remember waking up on Christmas night as my parents got to the hospital. Holy shit. Do you remember waking up? Do you remember waking up? And I what, do. What, the hell, I, what, goes through, what goes through your mind? <laughs> so I remember waking up. It was dark in the room and there was light outside and my parents came in. And so usually the parents are prepped and meet with somebody and they talk and, and as they start to wake up, you know, or if they can, well, my parents got there, it was in the middle of the night because they were going to fly them to Germany. Usually they fly families to Germany when, hey, they're going to keep us on life support until the family gets there and can say their goodbyes. And so then they called my parents like, wait a minute, he's doing good enough. We're going to get him to Walter Reed. So then their flights were changed. They got there in the middle of the night and they got, they ended up finding my room and coming right in without knowing anything. And when I saw my mom, something in the back of my mind said, smile, so she knows you're okay. I don't know why I thought that. And it was funny because years later, I gave a speech and they asked her to introduce me. 
And in her introduction, she mentioned the first time she walked in the room, she didn't know what to expect, what to, what condition her son was going to be in. And she walked in the room and I smiled at her and she was like, it's going to be okay. And I was like, oh, so then when I gave my speech, I was like, me and my mom have never talked about this, but I talk about that same experience from my side. And it was this weird kind of just, I wanted her to know everything was okay. And, and it worked. Of course, then I went through hell I'm <laughs> finding out what actually happened. And, you know, it, it went through a part of my life that I'm actually thankful for the depression, the depression I went through that lasted about five years. Uh, if I was going to be completely honest, but it was a, a stage in my life that was necessary. If I, if people ask me if I would do it all over again, without a doubt, if I hadn't have been blown up, lost two of my limbs, gone through my, that depression, I wouldn't be the person I am today. I wouldn't be the father I am today or the husband. The man I am today is because of those trials and tribulations that I went through and I'm thankful for them. Jesus, mic drop. If my mic wasn't on a freaking <laughs> tripod right now, I'd drop it. That was, uh, you said so many things that are just so, I mean, wise, mature, commendable. It's like you're saying you're thankful for your depression, your, your depression you had for five years. I never hear that, you know, going through what you went through. You know, but if I hadn't, if, if I hadn't went through that depression, I wouldn't be as comfortable talking about it on stage, whether I'm in front of a group of students or professional adults, whatever it is, I, you know, I bring it up every time I'm on stage because I tell people, I'm like, you know what? I am a big advocate of mental health, so I cannot be up here and not touch on. And when I did my book, I wrote a book, Living With No Excuses, and it talks about my childhood. It talks about Dancing With The Stars, all these other things. But the meat of it, the heart of the book is I am brutally honest about my depression because there's a lot of people that know my story that's like, oh, here's a guy got blown up, lost his arm or leg, ended up on the cover of Men's Health, came in third on Dancing with the Stars. He's done pretty well, but that's not reality. Reality is there's an entire chapter dedicated to me spending 10 days in the county jail. You know what I mean? Like there was a lot of mistakes I made. And when I did my book, it was painful to talk about them again because I had to relive them. But then it was like, okay, this is necessary I was terrified people were going to read it and hate me because all these people that loved me on Dance with the Stars saw me as this Southern gentleman. I was so nice and doing my best. <laughs> um, but then this book is like this other side. And I was afraid that people were going to hate me, but I kept telling myself it's necessary because I knew if one person read it who was going through that, they could know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I have had so many people, not just veterans, not just people with disabilities, people reach out to me that have read my book and connected to it because of the way they felt or someone they knew. And I thought that was really important. So yeah, that that's why I say that depression was important because it, it gives me a mindset and an experience that I can now share with others and relate to people and hopefully help someone like that, that student that reached out to me. I mean, if, the fact that he reached out and said, thank you for talking about mental health and, and how we do struggle, that means that kid has thought about it. He is struggling. And me saying, hey, if you're good, it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with asking for help or knowing someone and getting them help. Talking to a, you know, a fellow student to get you help or a teacher or a parent, whatever it is, you have to do it. You know, to, to take that away to say, and, and I feel like it's a nice thing for a guy that these kids may 
look at as, you know, very masculine. You know what I mean? Here's a guy that went to war, lost arm or leg, did all these races, did one that was a 58-hour race, you know, did all these crazy things. Then I'm saying it's okay to be upset. It is okay to be emotional, and it's okay to ask for help. I think that's a huge impact to put on on kids. Yeah, kids, men, anyone. Honestly, anyone. Like you, you hit the nail on the head in regards to someone of of your image of strength, bravery, courage. You were in war. You went through what you went, and your and your willingness to share the story. You hit the nail on the head. It's huge, and it's something about just hearing someone else express it really does have a cascading effect on so many people. So your bravery to go to war is one thing, but then your bravery to speak about it is a whole nother thing. It's a whole nother thing. Thank you. I appreciate that, David. I know that you said in the beginning, this podcast is about your guest, but I, I can't stress enough. I, just like I told you, when Amanda said, hey, this is the podcast that reached out, I was like, wow. You know, and I was so excited about this because I do. I think what you're doing um, with your podcast is, I think it's huge. Because it isn't talked about, you know, whether it's, you know, death, which leads to talking about like we're talking about depression. I think that these are conversations that need to be had. And I, I commend you on it. I think this is a, an incredible idea and platform. And I'm honored that you even asked me to be on it. Coming from you, I know I don't, you know, I know you don't know me very well. And this is a first conversation, but that, that means a lot. Seriously, it's, uh, you know, especially someone that's had a story like you and is doing what you're doing. That, that definitely, it's, it's high praise right there. So thank you. And and the honor is on this side of the camera. I promise you that. Um, you know, I, I know you got a lot, I know a lot going on, so I'll, I'll let you go. But I want to ask you um, just maybe one more thing. In regards to that five-year path that you had, you know, battling depression, it might be a loaded question. And I don't think you could package uh, one answer in five years. But is there anything that specifically helped you? I'm sure there's many things that you are illustrating to other people when you lecture and when you, you know, you talk to people about dealing with mental health and all that. Yep. Okay. So when I share with people, especially when I'm on stage, I'm sharing my story, you know, I always tell them that, you know, life is not a movie just because, you know, you know, things need to get better. They don't just work that way. But one thing I did have in my life and continue to have in my life are my three children. And I bring them up because one day I walked into the living room and my three kids, very young at the time, were sitting on the couch watching cartoons. And when I walked in and looked at them, this terrifying thought hit me. I realized to my two boys, I'm showing them what a man is and that's what they're going to become one day. And to my little girl, I'm showing her how a man's supposed to act and that's what she's going to look for one day. And I was not the man that I wanted my boys to be or my daughter to find. So I knew I had to make a change. And going back to life's not a, a movie, it doesn't just fix. Even though I knew I needed to make a change, I still made mistakes. But every time I screwed up and fell flat on my face, the thought of my three children was the motivation to get up and just try a little harder and go a little further. So I always tell people, you know, find that thing in your life that is bigger than your fears. I mean, books talk about it all the time. Find your why, you know, all these, that's what it is. Finding that thing, because I, I loved, especially I was talking to these kids the other day, and I was telling them that most people, well, everyone's going to hit an obstacle in life. It doesn't matter who you are, some sort of obstacle is going to hit you. And average people stop there. 
Like, okay, well, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm going. But exceptional people find a way to go over, around, under, or through that obstacle to get to the other side and then to keep pushing themselves for more. And that's what I did. And my children, every time something would be like, ah, I don't know. I'm like, well, I'm making a point for my children and I'm, I'm I'm teaching them lessons. And when I made the cover of Men's Health and then went on Ellen DeGeneres' show, shows wanted me. Survivor called me. I loved the show, but was like, I can't do it because I couldn't be away from my kids that long. Another show called, I turned them down. When Dancing with the Stars called me, I told them no, because they said they'd put me in a house in LA for the duration of the time I was there. I said, I, I was like, I got three kids here in Alabama. They're more important than a television show. And without hesitation, Dina Cass, the executive producer said, that's okay. We'll send the dancer to Alabama. You'll rehearse there all week and fly back and forth to LA for the live show. I'm like, oh crap, I guess, you know, I didn't have an argument then. So that's how I ended up on that show. <laughs> but everything in my life revolves around my children and my wife, you know, and, and being this, this family man, that's the world I'm in now. That's the world I'm in now, and it's what's got me through that depression. I always tell people, find that thing that is more powerful than your fears. And I, I stress when I say, you know, the obstacles that we go over, around, under, or through, that doesn't mean you have to bust through them like the Kool-Aid, man. Sometimes it's about saying, hey, I need to step back, and I, I maybe I should talk to a professional. And I, I tell that to everybody most complicated organ you have is right here. And, you know, if you had heart problems and you had saw a cardiologist, well, your friends, how's everything going since you had your, you know, everything's going good. I'm doing great. All right, I just want to check on you. Well, what's wrong with when people have issues with their, with their head? Well, then why do we judge people? We shouldn't. That's so true. It's a great analogy. Like anything else, you break your arm, you hurt your, anything went wrong with your heart. They do ask what's wrong, but the health for some reason is that stigma. Yes. Yes. You know, and the whole, like the no excuses mantra I use, I remind people all the time, it's not always a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mantra. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes no excuses means there's no excuse not to take care of yourself. You know, and one of the uh, examples I use sometimes, like think of a relative, you know, that maybe smokes a lot. You know, you don't see that as much anymore, but someone who's smoking, you're like, you know, you should probably quit smoking. It's not good for you. Well, you got to die of something. You know what I mean? Well, I'd love to throw it to them. <laughs> what if you don't immediately die? What if your smoking puts you in such a horrible state that your children have to stop what they're doing in their lives to take care of you? That stops people dead in their steps because it is because no one wants to be a burden. And, you know, to, sometimes I use that as an example to say, hey, take care of yourself because you know what? You may not care about yourself, but you want yourself to break down and it be a burden on someone else. No, you got to take care of yourself. I feel like I, I almost blacked out for a second because you made me think of so many different things. And then and that <laughs> analogy of uh, being a burden on someone else just woke up some things that I'm not going to put on this podcast right now. I'll keep that one to myself. Um Thank you for that. <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. Uh, you have a—I don't even—I don't even know you very well, but I'm—I'm I'm, I'm proud of everything you're doing, and I'm—I'm I'm looking forward to following you on this journey. And it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so thankful that you came on here. And if there's anything I could do to help in any way whatsoever, you know, I hope it does. Uh, the relationship doesn't end here because it's an honor to talk to you. You have so much to learn from. Well, thank you. I look forward to uh, promoting, you know, this podcast, you know, and I think, again, I, I can't stress enough. I think it is incredible. Uh, the topic you've chosen, the 
outline of your podcast. I think it is perfect. I look forward to seeing so many other how many other people you talk to and discussions that come up because I think it's powerful and important. So thank you for that. I appreciate you, man. Really, it's been an honor. Oh, 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 oh